Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Kevin McBerry from Loyola University Medical Center talking about evaluation and medical treatment of LUTs and BPH. So, uh, welcome. Um, appreciate the kind introduction, Power, and um, appreciate the invitation by UCSF uh, to do this uh, for um, all you folks. So, uh, I'm going to move on. Uh, my charge is to talk about medical management with BPH, which in part really is also evaluation, and I'm going to throw that in for free. Um, so, disclosures, mandatory, actually not much there. Um, uh, first things first, I hate doing this, but we need to talk about some definitions. And um, what we really want to talk about is LUTs, lower urinary tract symptoms, because BPH is this benign enlargement. We're going to speak accurately anyway, and I would encourage you to do that. It is not hyper, hypertrophy, it is hyperplasia. Um, what, what referring physicians mean uh, when they do an exam and say, hey, he's got BPH, um, they likely re, uh, talk about prostatic enlargement. And then the, th the sequelae is obviously the bladder outlet obstruction. We kind of, sometimes we use these interchangeably, but really it's LUTs is what, is what it's all about. So uh, I've mentioned the hyperplasia. It's hyperplasia. It's proliferation of these cells and lower urinary tract symptoms, all kinds of causes, um, a number of symptoms, we're going to boil it down into kind of what I call the seven cardinal symptoms, and I'll talk about that in a second. You probably periodically hear about zonal anatomy, and I, I know there's a whole spectrum of residents listening today, and so I don't want to um, belabor this point, but what we're really talking about is enlargement of the transition zone that begins someplace in the late 20s and then continues, in most men, continues to grow for the rest of their life, and that is the BPH part uh, of the prostate, the transition zone. Less than 5% uh, of total prostate volume in a 20-year-old, but can be the majority of the prostate volume uh, later in life. Now, this is one of my favorite slides. This comes from the Olmsted County uh, study where they assessed not clinic patients, but men living in the community around Mayo Clinic. Um, very famous study, and the red line shows that 1.6% percent increase in prostate growth per year. So these men had ultrasounds, you know, community men volunteered, came in, had an ultrasound repeatedly over a number, uh, a number, uh, seven year time period. And on average, you see the prostate growing relatively slow. Um, each line represents one patient. So you can see this man, prostate went from 60 grams or something up into the 70s during this period of time. And his cohort, age match cohort, is aligned down here someplace. And this guy had very little prostate enlargement. But if they came into the office, you would treat them the same, even though this guy is fundamentally different than this guy down here. So what's going on? Um, so for your in-service, and kind of conventional etiology of LUTs BPH is this, um, a static component and a dynamic component. The static component is that increase in prostate volume that occurs over time. I'm old enough that when I was a resident, this was the BPH of BPH LUTs. This, 
you know, me, me urologist, me cut out, patient get better, uh, that kind of idea, prostate growth. Um, in the early 90s, late, late 80s, actually, Herb Lepore and other investigators um, really um, promoted this concept of a dynamic tone of the prostate, uh, primarily in, uh, increasing the smooth muscle um, contraction uh, of the bladder at being a more prominent cause of lower urinary tract symptoms. So really, they're not mutually exclusive. They both compete. But I will tell you that this is wrong. <laughs> uh, now, for your in-service, stick with this slide. But for reality, it's really more like this, um, where there's this big multifactorial, uh, multiple causes of the symptoms. And yes, obstruction is important, but we forget about the detrusor overactivity. I'll talk about nocturnal polyureas in a second, and then a whole another whole other host of things, including systemic disorders, the central nervous system, um, sleep disorders, all contribute to lower urinary tract symptoms. So um, that's hard. It's, you know, it's a little bit different concept, but this is really where the field is. A um, couple of things I wanted to say, uh, again, because I know there's a spectrum of residents listening. The size of the prostate does not correlate to the symptom severity. I mean, I wish I had a nickel for every time someone said, oh, I did a rectal, his prostate was this big. He must have, he must, you know, he has BPH. Mm, those are disconnected in part, that dynamic tone, and plus those older multifactorial uh, issues, which may be driving the symptoms. So be careful uh, causally linking those two. Um, the idea is there are differences between men, even with a one particular prostate volume, because the capsule may be different, the location of the hyperplasia may be different, it could be a strategic location of prostate tissue. And then, you know, the central nervous system, as I mentioned, moderates uh, this, uh, maybe accentuates uh, these symptoms. And of course, the bladder is not independent in here, the bladder is a player. So uh, anyway, it's more complicated than just prostate got big or prostate got tight. Um, when we transition into treating uh, lower urinary tract symptoms, keep your eye on the ball, and that's the symptoms. It's important um, that as you discuss options with patients, that they get, they get a vote on this. <laughs> um, it used to be controversial. Um, and it's certain, uh, it, as primary care physicians have taken an appropriate increasing role in the management of Lutz BPH, um, there are circumstances when it should be sent to us, and I'll detail that in a second. Um, in the past, it was controversial that primary care would have any role in here. And frankly, I, I'm glad. Uh, I'd rather, you know, handle the ones that don't, aren't managed um, sufficiently well in primary care. I'll, I'll take those guys. Um, so this comes from the 2011 AUA guidelines. And um, I put this on here to scare you uh, for a couple of reasons. One, this is great fodder for questions for in-services and um, your board exam. It's a guideline, it's got data on it, and you're kind of responsible for it. But it's totally intimidating and it's confusing to look at it. So a couple of things I wanted to mention. Number one, uh, this is in the guidelines, so it's totally accessible to you. Um, but when you have a complicated presentation, you know, these types of issues, then maybe that's the time when primary care should step out. That comes right down to when it says specialized management, that means us, 
urologists. Um, but when patients walk in uh, to see us for the first time, you should be doing a few things. I'll explain these in a second. Um, but I want to make a focus here that this is underutilized, this idea of the frequency volume charts. That reveals so much. It is free, it's homework for the patient, and importantly, it leads to better care. Because when you start doing frequency volume charts, you can separate out these other causes of polyuria, nocturnal polyuria, important things to know about. So if you're gonna spend any time looking at the guideline, look at this box, this box, and this box. That's what I wanted to say. Now, um, this is the second part of that same flow diagram and the uh, algorithm, and the ideas, of course, is to intimidate you. No, not really. Um, the idea is that this is what we're gonna talk about today when we talk about medical management is down here, but I, I'll have this presented in a second in a slightly more friendly way, and I think you'll, um, you might get something out of that. Um, okay, the initial evaluation, the patient walks in, this is right off of what you just saw. You gotta take a history. Please use a symptom score. If it is so useful, and just get used to doing it now. Every patient that sees me, first visit or their 100th visit, I make them do this. Um, it very, it, it really helps me kind of focus in on the uh, on the problem. I'll explain the symptom score in a second, but it really part I I would look at it as a standard. It's actually recommended. Um, obviously, you can do an exam, a urinalysis. I'll mention that in a second, and then I asterisk the PSA because that is part of our guidelines. But certainly, you want to take that in context. Um, in, in context uh, about PSA, and I've already mentioned the voiding diary enough. Okay, the symptom score. Uh, this is called the AUA symptom index, sometimes the AUA symptom score or the international prostate symptom score. There are subtle difference, differences between the AUA score and the IPSS, the quality of life, the eighth question, um, but they are basically, they have the same mother and father. They are the same product. Um, and we arbitrarily, at the beginning, divided these into mild, moderate, and severe by use, excuse the mean to advance, by, um, uh, by the demarcations you see here. As it turns out, later on, Mike Berry and a group from um, Boston um, did some more patient interactions with the score, and it turns out that our arbitrary divisions correspond beautifully the way patients self-assess. When their scores are seven or less, they say, yeah, my doctor, my symptoms are mostly mild. When their symptoms are eight, uh, you know, 19 to 35, then the patient would say, hey, they say, yeah, yeah, God, these are severe symptoms. So it corresponds nicely, fortunately, that we divided it according to the way patients interact. And so again, critical. Patient comes in, he's got a symptom score in the seven or six. You know, it's hard to make an asymptomatic patient feel better. So, um, so don't drive. Um, your analysis, a couple of things I think are important. Why do we do this? Well, you look for infection. You look for blood as alternate causes for blood. So it might tip you off a carcinoma in situ or some other issues. But two things which I think as urologists, um, it is our job to do, to look for glucose and look for proteinuria because I guarantee you the primary care physicians miss this. Um, in fact, the glucosuria assessment is so critical. I put it on here twice. Um, multiple times, many times a week, I'll get patients in for recalcitrant lots. I look at them, they're spilling sugar like crazy. They have an obligate diuresis, and you are not gonna make that patient better unless that glucose urea is improved. 
So you can throw all the alpha blockers in the world. And if he still has glucose here, he's going to have to get up at night. So uh, focus on that when you look at the UA. That's the real reason that we do that. Uh, physical exam for lower urinary tract symptoms, it's so simple, even a urologist could do it. Um, it's a focused exam looking at the lower pelvis and a neurovascular examination. A couple of things on the DRE, which I still advocate for. We don't really do it for size because even with gray hair, um, digital rectal exam is unreliable in estimating prostate volume. We tested that. Um, and you know, even you know, the emeritus professors aren't much better uh, than neophytes. Uh, smaller prostates are overestimated on digital rectal and larger prostates are underestimated. Um, so you're doing it for other reasons like prostate cancer, assessment, and that's a whole nother talk, um, but also the neurologic examination that comes with the digital rectal examination. All right, uh, active surveillance. Um, um, obviously, this is not ignoring patients. It's re-evaluate, not treating now, re-evaluating later. And um, really what drives that is the severity of the symptoms. When they're severe, most patients are voting for that. Um, and the bother of the symptoms, and that's different. Symptom severity is different than bother. Some patients cope better uh, than others, and so you can use that to um, adjust how you're going to do the active surveillance or if you're going to do it at all. M note to self, if the level of symptoms are worse, um, then not so good, then, um, active surveillance should be done more frequently. Instead of once a year, maybe every one, uh, every six months, because those with higher symptoms are at increased risk of having progression. We'll talk about it in a second, BPH progression, and that's the proper use of BPH progression, um, uh, occurring uh, more frequently. A couple of rules, uh, watchful waiting or active surveillance appropriate for mild symptoms or patients with more severe symptoms, but they're not bothered. For instance, a guy is a farmer and he has frequency, but he's out in the fields and you know, he has frequency, he's gonna poison a few more weeds. Um, no big deal. Next guy, he's the city mouse. He's in the city, he doesn't have that ability to do that. They are more bothersome for him. His ability to cope with that might be different. So uh, given the same level of symptoms, one patient active surveillance, the other one uh, maybe medical management. So again, gotta take it in context. There are circumstances when you don't do active surveillance. If they have renal insufficiency from bladder outlet obstruction, nope, you've got you to do some kind of intervention. Obviously, retention, reinfection, chronic retention, whatever that is. Why do I say it that way? Because we don't really have an effective definition of chronic urinary retention. There's no litmus test, unfortunately. So that's why the question mark. Um, couple of things about impact of active surveillance. There was a study, Bob Flanagan, uh, former chairman of Loyola, did this study, published it uh, back in the 90s, a TURP versus active surveillance study, if you can believe that. And well, one of the objects was to look at what drove patients to abandon active surveillance and go to um, an active therapy. In this case, it was only TURP. That's what it was, it was bothering bothers the thing that drives them. So same level of symptoms bothers the one that pushes men away. So it, and bother is not, again, symptom severity. It's the way patients cope. Um, it's an underexplored uh, concept. Um, is there an impact if patients decide to do active 
uh, surveillance? It's an important question. Um, and there's evidence from the, this trial I just showed you, the watchful waiting uh, versus TRP trial, the BA trial. Um, and if you look at the placebo groups of the long-term dutesteride trials, in those two studies, you can see that when patients crossed over after a delay, after a two-year delay, they never catch up with their peers, their cohorts. So there's a cost, there's an impact. And when I talk about active surveillance with patients, I say, well, there is evidence that you won't catch up if ever you cross over. But what we can't say is that that's bad for you, um, that it has some other impact. But it is clear that um, there is a um, expense to that, to them. So um, when you use medications, remember, target is lower urinary tract symptoms. And the idea is to prevent progression. I'll explain that when I get to the MTOPS. And of course, you want to improve patients' quality of life. Um, well, we're into alpha blockers now, and that's the first one. And you're probably aware that there's a series of, of um, alpha receptors, the alpha-1A, the alpha-1B, and the alpha-1D. What happened to C? Um, that, there's a story behind that. There isn't a C. Um, but long, long story short, uh, if because of the location of the alpha-1A, which is in the smooth muscle of the prostate, and also probably the afferent nerves, the smooth muscle of the bladder neck, and a little bit, um, not as much, but some in the detrusor. So if you're going to give an alpha blocker, you would like to hit those particular receptors. Um, also, uh, the detrusor is more alpha-1D, and so if you have an alpha blocker you wanted to use, having some alpha-1D activity might be useful. Alpha-1B is not here. Where is alpha-1B? Alpha-1B is primarily in the vascular tree. And so you'd like to have some alpha-1A exposure, some binding activity. You'd like to have some alpha-1D activity. You don't want alpha-1B because that's where the hypotension comes from. Alpha blockers used for hypertension, they have a stronger alpha-1B component. And, um, that's the story. Okay, um, as prostates enlarge with age, the density of these receptors increases and the location changes. So as prostates get bigger, they, um, that density of receptors, excuse me, the density of re receptors um, increases in the bladder neck and in the smooth muscle of the prostate. Here's your choices of alpha blockers as it exists today. This is the story of my career. Um, this, this column of medications right here. And I'll just go through a couple of those. Um, the message is this. Um, my own opinion, it is reasonable to consider these first lines. The AUA guidelines don't say that, but that is reasonable. That is what most people do. If you look at these agents, they all work about the same. Um, there are ways to differentiate them, and the ways to differentiate them is, do you have to titrate, yes or no? The adverse events that occur with those medications, and then the drug-drug interactions. That's the way to differentiate them. But when you look at flow rate and symptom scores, not much difference. Um, example, doxosacin. Um, this is a 12-week study looking at two different doses. It was four and eight milligrams, and here's changes in flow rate, and you can see a very um, subtle increase um, um, by dose titration. There is a substantial difference between the control, uh, the placebo control in this case. If we look over here, symptom score, and you can see, again, um, a modest improvement and symptom improvement um, by dose and a substantial difference between placebo. So just take a 
mind picture of that. Uh, Alfusus and another drug also called um, Uroxetron. And I would say these, when we look at the differences between the placebos, there are some subtle differences, but the level of symptom improvement and flow rate improvement are pretty comparable. Um, I don't really think it's worth trying to go and say, well, which one of the alpha blockers working better because they're so close, who cares? Um, the other thing, these are again, 12 week trials. And that's just gonna come up when we talk about the other major class. So this is 12 week data. Um, and basically in my own view, they work pretty much the same. Um, I think I've explained this. The first couple of bullets, okay. When you look at adverse events, um, discontinuation rates are, uh, are one way to look at, was the adverse event enough that it impacted patient behavior or physician behavior? And so you look at discontinuation rates, the big one, of course, is cardiovascular events. And when you look at the generic, older terazosin, doxosin, or the old um, alfusosins, never available in the United States, it was a European medication, they have a certain baseline of discontinuation rate based on cardiovascular events, which are primarily um, hypotension, because they were developed for hypertension. Um, in the, uh, later on, an intermediate release, alfusosin was developed again only in um, Europe, um, but it had a lower rate because it was a slower onset of action. You didn't have the rapid changes in blood pressure. And then lastly, tamsulosin, silodosin, more subtype specificity, they had no alpha-1b exposure and they have the lowest rate on cardiovascular events, but they also have higher rates for sexual dysfunction uh, adverse events, which I'm not really gonna talk about today. Okay, uh, next class is um, the five ARIs, five, five alpha reductase inhibitors. I think probably you all know this pathway. There's a type one and a type two, and the idea is these enzymes metabolize testosterone to DHT, and that's the active agent inducing this prostate growth, this slow prostate growth over time. The concept was if you can drive DHT to zero, the prostate involutes to a limited degree. Um, how well does it work? Well, this is a famous trial um, called the PLESS trial. It was a long-term study looking at finasteride, one of the five ARIs, impact on symptom score. So this was not the AUA symptom score when this study was done, well, it started, because it wasn't invented then. Um, but I want you to see the exact. This is years. And the alpha blocker you saw was weeks. So you can see a different uh, impact. You can see an impact in, on symptoms with five ARIs, but you're, it's a long game. You're looking, you're measuring years. So you have to be on these medications for at close to a year before you can begin to measure an impact on symptoms. You, if you're going to use this drug for symptoms, then the patient has to understand he's got to be the patient. This is the long game. There are other advantages here, but for this, for symptoms, this I think is worth remembering. Um, how do these two types of drugs um, relate? Uh, well, I put this on here, type one and type two are kind of the issues. Finasteride is a type two, detesteride does both. The, the plummeting of DHT is a little bit different between the two because of that difference in subtype specificity. Changes in PSA are, are essentially uh, equal and, um, and also pretty equal in terms of decreasing prostate volume. We give these medications, 
um, primarily, I give these medications primarily to reduce urinary retention risk and to reduce the risk of patients requiring surgery. And if you look at those two reasons, so again, those are long game indications, not short time improvements, um, that these two drugs work pretty much the same. Now, they're, this is a 48 month, this is 24 months, they're different cohorts, they shrink the prostate differently here because the duration's different. But ultimately, when we look at the outcome, they look pretty similar to me. Um, five ARIs can impact patients crossing over from uh, uh, crossing over to surgery or requiring surgery. And so, but again, it's a long game. You're, the curves um, really don't uh, separate much until you get closer to a year's time. So symptom improvement, yeah, um, it's okay, it works. Be patient, it's a marriage. Um, other hardcore outcomes, retention and crossover to surgery, again, long-term management, um, but you gotta commit to it. All right, MTOPS trial. This is the trial that kind of set us where we are today on how to use these medications. I think it's important to review it. Um, and just by the MTOPS trial was a placebo-controlled trial of these agents, alpha blocker monotherapy, finasteride monotherapy, and combination uh, drugs. If uh, we look at when patients got randomized and follow them over uh, five, almost four point some years, uh, on, uh, you can see the placebo, about 15 some 20% um, uh, having worsening symptoms. Their symptom scores rose over that period of time, at least four, that was a way to endpoint. Um, monotherapies by the end of the trial, relatively equal, and the combination superior. If we take a look at a different outcome of the MTOPS, same idea, uh, slightly different story. Here's placebos. The y-axis is like 2.53% here. Uh, and this is yellow is alpha blocker, green is the finasteride. In the initial phases, uh, they seem uh, pretty close. But by the end of the trial, alpha blocker actually is equivalent to placebo in preventing this outcome urinary retention. It delays this, but does not prevent it. When you look at finasteride, monotherapy or combination, they prevent this outcome, the acute urinary retention outcome. Um, so again, there's a difference, but again, you don't begin to see that till you get someplace out here in the two-year mark. Um, displayed a different way is this slide, urinary retention by prostate volume. And I put this on because um, I had some in early interactions when this was still released. And residents would come and say, hey, I saw a patient, I read your paper, I put them on both drugs. Wrong. Um, there is a way to discern who needs to be on both drugs. One way is to look at the prostate volume. Let me explain. Uh, so here's the, the cohort in the MTOPS trial by treatment group, and those that had a prostate volume of approximately 40 grams or more. Placebo and alpha blocker, pretty close. Interesting, huh? Um, but when you look, when you have finasteride in combination or monotherapy, there's a marked impact in terms of preventing this progressive outcome, BPH progression outcome. When you look at intermediate size glands, you see um, that there is a distribution, but again, alpha blockers uh, combination probably 
outperforming the other agents. Alpha blocker is better than placebo. But when you look at uh, smaller prostates, 20 grams or less, there's no impact of um, combination um, medication. So these deserve combination. Uh, other prostate volumes don't. Prostate volumes determines outcome. From the 2011 BPH guidelines, they're here, how to use the five ARIs. Um, it's reasonable, discuss its impact on retention and surgery. Um, can be used for LUTs, obviously, but again, long game. Um, but what you, what you really need to have is enlargement. You gotta have prostate enlargement. That can be by uh, some imaging test. It can be by a PSA, which is a great proxy for prostate volume, provided they do not have uh, prostate cancer. And then we allowed digital rectal and cysto so people don't get sued. But um, regardless, um, you need enlargement, some evidence of enlargement. Another way of looking at it is patient shows up, you're trying to decide, well, what should I do with this patient? And so I have it displayed two different ways here. First, does the patient have prost no prostate enlargement of some kind, you measured it by some means, or lots of it? Does he have bothersome symptoms or not? So if the patient has bothersome symptoms and an enlarged prostate, think about combination drugs. If the patient has bothersome symptoms but no real discernible enlargement, think about alpha blockers. If he has no bothersome symptoms but a big, huge prostate, do you need to treat him? Well, there are some patients where you might. You know, he has a valve and he's on Coumadin and you never want to see this guy in the OR. Yeah, that might be a good time to consider treating his enlargement. And you could just do five eyes, frankly, because he doesn't have symptoms to improve with the alpha blocker. And if he has no enlargement, no symptoms, then you say, why are you here? Um, so new kid on the, newer kid on the block to Dalafil. Um, by dose, this is the second most common prescribed drug in the US anyway for Lutz BPH now. Um, you can see the color code. Um, looking again, a 12 week study, that's your standard. And you can see by dose, these um, 2.5, 5, 10s and, and 20s. The blue line here, this aqua line, is the, is the three point change in symptom score. Why is that there? Well. At, three, at a three-point improvement, patients can say, hey, doc, thanks. I can sense, a, I sense an improvement. So uh, all the doses have an impact. And you can see they all drop it to that three points. Um, five was kind of the magic point between this balance between more adverse events and an improved lower urinary tract symptom score. So that's why you use five on a daily basis because of this particular, um, this particular paper. This is a study from Europe. It was essentially the registration trial for PD-5 inhibitors for lower urinary tract symptoms in Europe. And they always have an active comparator, unlike the U.S. who's uh, placebo. And you can see the distribution in this study and symptom scores, um, alpha blockers and, and 5-ARIs improve the symptom score. Very, can't discern difference. They work about the same. Um, this is the BPHM impact. I don't even talk about that. In this study alone, flow rate uh, showed a change. In this particular study, and all most other uh, five, uh, excuse me, PD-5 inhibitor studies, um, the medication does not improve flow rate. It doesn't change urodynamics. It changes symptoms, but not urodynamics, and there's a story behind that. 
Um, this is a meta-analysis we published. I noticed when I looked at it this morning, it's mislabeled. This is PD-5 inhibitors and on this side and, uh, and placebo over here, so that's wrong. But essentially looking at a, a bazillion studies, there's a distinct weighted advantage in terms of symptom improvement with PD-5 inhibitors. However, if you look at flow rate, no change. So this is kind of the consistent story. Um, they improve the symptoms. They don't do much to, um, to flow to your dynamics. Um, one study looking at the combination of Tadalafil and Finasteride. It was a short, it was a weird study, 26 weeks, all right? But um, it was Tadalafil and Finasteride, that's the blue line, and then um, placebo and Finasteride, that's the gray line. And essentially, that combination has some distinct advantages. Patients uh, do have an improvement in their symptoms, as you would expect. Uh, they also have an improvement in their uh, erection, which you would have expected. Uh, because it was this one, kind of a one-off trial, it never really moved enough where we could, um, never really moved forward enough that we could uh, use this effectively. Uh, let's say in terms of guidelines, um, but it's nice to have this in your pack. There's a, there's a, uh, I think a valid reason to consider these two medications concomitantly. Never took off the ground for a lot of patent reasons, that kind of stuff. Um, but you can think about it. It's a short duration. 26 months is probably not enough for that. So summing up the PD-5 inhibitors, remember they improve symptoms equivalent to alpha blockers. They don't change urodynamics. Why I keep saying that? I keep saying it because if a patient comes in urinary retention, even though we think they improve symptoms, the fact that you don't change the underlying urodynamics, both with residuals, et cetera, you probably don't want to use PD-5 inhibitors for that patient. That's where you want to use your alpha blockers because that's a proven effect. Uh, and not, it may work, it's never been really tested. And so uh, for a trial without catheter success, depend on the uh, alpha blocker. And so here's kind of, this is the AUA algorithm. It is going to change um, in the next calendar year or so. Um, and I kind of put arrows in so you could see where I view PD-5 inhibitors uh, coming in. And basically wherever you use an alpha blocker, you could sub in a PD-5 inhibitor, it looks like it has the same impact, of course, without with that one caveat about urinary retention. So you got a patient, he's got modest symptoms, his prostate's small, leave him alone. You got patients with moderate to severe symptoms, they bother him, he's got a small prostate, alpha blockers. He's got symptoms, a big prostate, think about combination. And this is this guy, big prostate, no symptoms. Is this a guy you ever want to meet in the OR? Think about that because that might be the case where you could just do this uh, and because you're not really trying to impact symptoms. What about anticholinergics? This is just a classic one from Scott McDermott. Um, patients were to given alpha blockers, they failed. They didn't have symptom improvement. They were brought back in, given alpha blocker plus placebo versus alpha blocker and an anticholinergic, in this case, oxybutynin XL. And what do you see? Well, you see some rescue, what we call add-on therapy. You can improve the symptoms adding on these two medications. And in the U, uh, these two types, classes of um, medications, and in the U.S., most patients would be treated with an add-on uh, technique uh, rather than a straight anticholinergic. Um, is there any risk with this? Well, look at 
changes in pulse void volume, pulse void residual volume. There is always a subtle, in, in these trials, there's always a subtle um, worsening of pulse void residual. How much? It, it really, it's under 20 cc's in most of those trials. So an insignificant but measurable difference. If you see down here, adverse events uh, defined as a pulse void residual above 300, it's usually, uh, anticholinergics usually come in around 3% of men, their pulse void residual will rise above 300. Is there something dangerous about 300? We don't know that. We don't know if it's dangerous or not. We just know that when we do these trials by protocol and FDA mandate, they get kicked out of the trial. So we really don't know um, what the implications are for having a pulse void residual above 300. Uh, some say 200, 250, 300. Uh, the trials uh, vary in that, in that regard. But what it has resulted in is that if you're going to use anticholinergics, you got to know the pulse blood residual. Otherwise, you're kind of hanging out there. When I was a resident, if I had a patient, he had urinary symptoms. And I said, well, let's give him an anticholinergic. Uh, they would get you out. Um, now, we realize that's completely inappropriate, that patients, um, we don't know what the impact of, uh, of raising the pulse blood residual above 300 really is. Um, but there isn't information to really guide us. And so we're kind of stuck uh, to stick to those FDA, um, those FDA mandates about patient safety. So um, I would just warn you, it's in the guidelines. It drives primary care guys crazy. Um, if you're going to use an anticholinergic, know your pulse blood residual first. And you may want to check it on return visit. All right. Urological Disease in America project is a project we've been doing around helping the guys at Hopkins, um, Brian Matalga, about this. Uh, I just wanted to introduce it. Ten-year data following patients, Medicare patients and private insurance patients over a ten-year period of time. Why do I mention it? It gives us an, a snapshot of where we are today. Basically, medical management is increasing in our population. It increases by age, but also, um, you know, like 80-year-olds more likely to get it than 40-year-olds but also uh, within each age group, we are increasing our medical management. So even though you think as surgeons, geez, we're still doing so much more surgery now than we did before, actually surgery rates are going down, medication rates continue to increase. Um, so get used to it. Um, distribution of uh, drug type, again, from the uh, Urologic Disease in America project, older Medicare patients have higher exposure to medications, private patients, not. What's interesting is to look at the 60-year-olds, the men in their 60s, uh, because they're transitioning from private into Medicare. You see a big change during that decade. Uh, and if is that financial? Is that, uh, you know, Medicare is going to pay for it? I'm, so I'm going to go ahead and start the medications. It's not clear at this point. Um, anyway, you can look at the paper if you're at all interested. So one message we got from the urological disease in America is patients, um, the frequency with which they come in, uh, active surveillance for a number of years, then transition to medication for a number of years, then transition into surgery. You can see um, the percentage of no treatment decreasing by decade of life, medication penetration increasing by decade of life, and crossing over to surgery, um, increasing by decade of life. We can follow this um, very um, easily. And then men transitioning from medicine into surgery, you're looking at still single digits. 
So this medication exposure is still very high. What about botanicals? So this is a paper we published looking at salt, dose titration salt palmetto long-term study published in JAMA 10 years ago or so. And long story short, no matter what you try to do, when patients are blinded and you have objective measures, salt palmetto at low, medium, and high doses, no impact on symptoms. There is no signal whatsoever. Um, despite a thousand patients wearing Birkenstocks walking into the office saying that they had an impact uh, when they took some kind of over-the-counter salt palmetto, you cannot measure an impact. Uh, and you can see we searched every measure I possibly could think of. We tried, uh, and there is basically no signal that salt palmetto does anything. So when patients ask me, well, you know, should I take it? One, don't look, it doesn't look like it does harm. Um, I tell them, hey, the people that produce salt palmetto, they got to live, you know, so you might as well buy it from them. No, I don't say that. But um, uh, there's no measurable impact. Is it wrong to take it? No, because it's not killing them but it's important that patients understand that it's more of a philosophy practice and, uh, than it is a treatment. So that's not wrong or right, but they should be, they should be warned. Uh, I tell them, save your money. Um, so I think that I am on time and on budget. I think this is an adequate summary of where lots of BPH is. Uh, been a lot of, uh, blinding streets uh, on this uh, on this field um, and I think that urologists probably are represented very nicely by this blind guy right here with the white cane. So um, Parth, happy to handle questions. Yeah, it looks like um, there are a few. Uh, the first one is asking about your experience with insurance coverage for uh, Cialis for LUTs um, and, and whether patients are required to fail other uh, medications for this issue. Yeah, very common question. So I'll just say that um, we, were, we were the ones that, myself and a couple of colleagues were the ones that really pr first proposed PD-5 inhibitors as a treatment for LUTs. And I thought, God, it'll never catch on. No one will ever pay for it. Um, but it turned out that was wrong. Um, they do pay for it. Uh, there are some, some differences. Um, so depending on whatever pharmacy plan they have, some more liberal saying, yes, you can use it as a primary therapy. Most would say, you, um, you need to demonstrate a non-response or an adverse event before that's going to be covered. Uh, that, I'd say, is the consensus of most. There are some pharmacy programs, and even within Medicare, there's a spectrum of pharmacy programs, coverage programs, and some will cover it. Many won't under any circumstance, so it varies. All right. Um, the next question is about um, how you use anticholinergic therapy uh, with the new um, research showing the risk for um, psychological side effects um, and neurological deterioration. Um, good, good question about this issue of dementia, perhaps increasing risk of dementia. Um, I would just say it's controversial, but it is a story that doesn't seem to be going away. Um, so I have tried to move away from anticholinergics in my patients where I've decided they need something other than an alpha blocker. Um, tried to basically move them into beta-3 agonists, um, mostly because of that, but also discontinuation rates are more favorable with beta-3 agonists rather than anticholinergics. They don't have the dry mouth and this kind of thing. Coverage is an issue for sure. 
Um, so I, if I get to choose, I will not use an anticholinergic. I'll use um, uh, beta-3 agonist and uh, try to steer away from in part because of that warning, but also there are other kind of nasty side effects of anticholinergics, compliance, and uh, greater than 50% will stop after a few weeks anyway, so because of those side effects. So, uh, so I have to look away from it. Thanks. Yeah, that, that actually covers another question about um, beta-3 agonists versus anticholinergics. Yeah, so why, um, why are beta-3 agonists in here? I'll tell you, because um, there's a very small number of papers which deal with um, beta-3 agonists as a treatment for LUTs. Uh, most of those are add-on, failed alpha blocker, go on to beta-3 agonists. And the upcoming medical BPH guidelines coming out in 2021, uh, we've addressed this, um, but I can't really spill the beans on that. So anyway, it's coming. All right. Um, there's another question about um, using alpha blocker or combination therapy in the acute setting. For example, the acutely um, urinary retained patient or uh, the post-op uh, void trial failure patients um, and whether uh, there's any use with that. So if you look at those timelines, um, the impact of five ARIs, they're not going to get you out of trouble. Um, they, they're not going to. Um, so really the focus should be on the alpha blocker. Is there any reason to use a five ARI then? Well, possibly. Um, there is mixed evidence, but uh, I believe it, um, that five ARIs impact hematuria. They, they impact vascular supply. You take a 5-ARI within two weeks, the end of, there's a marked apoptosis of the endothelial cells within the prostate, so you, do re, you can reduce um, bleeding. So if you have this patient, you think, well, he's a trial without catheter, but maybe we're going to make it or not. We might be taking them to OR. You might, you might save yourself some hassle. Um, uh, in terms of intraoperative bleeding, there's some evidence that shows you'll reduce that. Um, really not enough to change transit, uh, trans, uh, fusion rates because they're so low. But uh, so there is a potential role. But if you, you're not going to, there isn't evidence that you're going to impact his, a successful trial without catheter with a 5-ARI alone or in combination. Okay. Um, and staying on the topic of combination therapy, when, if ever, would you try to wean one of uh, the medications? We didn't show that slide, and, uh, and I'll just speak to it. Um, and there's anecdotal evidence. There were trials looking at dropping the alpha blocker arm. Uh, you know, start with combination therapy, go for a number of months or years, months, for these trials, and then dropping the alpha blocker arm. Those trials were underpowered. Um, they weren't really good trials. Um, so it's really hard to say, well, the, the trials that tried to answer that question, can I do withdrawal therapy, dropping the alpha blocker on, um, they did, can't really answer the question. But if you look at the MTOPS curves, and I should have showed it before, um, I mentioned it. If, you're gonna, if you look at the symptom improvement scores and look to say where combination um, medication and monotherapy finasteride, where do they parallel? It's about two and a half years. That's when they start to parallel. So the message, when I, it's, it's inferred from that. That wasn't the test at the time. It wasn't powered. We weren't asking that question. But the inference is that um, at two and a half years of combination therapy, 
there doesn't look like there's a difference from two and a half to five years um, between those two arms. So I think that means you could drop the alpha blocker after about two years or so. So that's, I think, the honest, most data-driven way to answer the question. Uh, thanks. Yeah. And, and so speaking of kind of long-term follow-up of these patients, can you speak a little bit to um, how you follow them, if you follow them for um, any kind of upper tract damage uh, in the setting of uh, long-term BPH less treatment? And I will add a second component to that that I was wondering. Uh, I know you touched on chronic urinary retention. How will you follow those patients who are not having symptoms or sequelae um, of chronic retention? Okay, so I'll answer the first one first because it's easier, um, and then I'll handle yours part. So, um, how do I manage those guys? Well, you know, if they have upper tract disease, upper tract you know, hydronephrosis related to outlet obstruction, those are not medical managed patients. Those are patients that should be treated surgically. If you look at those trials, um, anyone with upper tract disease, they shunt down. So when I see, um, the idea is if you've got renal compromise already, do you really want to take a chance um, with that patient's renal function um, by giving him a therapy that, he, that you know is going to be suboptimal? So if they have upper tract deterioration, medication's not, I mean, it's fine to temporize it, to get the catheter out while you plan for surgery. But in my view, that is a surgical indication. If you look at surgery, uh, BPH guidelines, surgery, um, and I don't know who's doing the surgery component of this, um, urinary retention, upper tract disease, it's not medical, it's not medical treatment. That is a surgical patient. That's how I manage it. <laughs> and that's what the guidelines say. Um, okay, chronic retention. So you have this guy, he comes in, you just met him, you got 500, you know, let's say 500, uh, CC's pulse flood residual. You did alpha blockers. He came back. It was four ninety nine. Uh, he's perfectly fine. He's got no upper tract deterioration. He's like, you know, um, does he need an operation? Actually, I can't answer that um, because there isn't a magic point. Um, but I have such patients who I who by mutual discussion um, between patient and myself, where we say okay, um, we're, we're not getting better. We can't guarantee you that um, surgery is going to be a help. And if you want to avoid it, uh, avoid a surgical procedure, um, I'm happy to watch you. That's a guy I would keep on a short leash. I would recheck him, recheck him, recheck him. Um, so how do you use, I mean, the next question is, well, then how do you use impulsor residual? And, and uh, I mean, how many times I got to say it? We don't have good information on it. Um, so when you don't have science, do art. And what is art? Um, art here is I do what I saw work when I was a resident. And that is patient comes in, his pulse residual is 200. And he comes back three months later, six months later, now it's 300. And then the next time it's 400. So I'm looking at the trend line. I'm saying, well, sir, you know, I can't tell you um, what this means, but I'm concerned, you know, definitively, but I'm concerned that you're decompensating and that you're failing medical management. And in this case, I think we should do a procedure, that we should do something to see if we can reverse that. And that's kind of old time urologic art. And I use that because I don't have anything else to weigh in on. And same issue is, well, what about urodynamics? If you did urodynamics and, um, and would that help you decide? No, 
Because when you look at men who have marked hypotonia or atonia, catheter dependent, if you look at their, uh, you, know, you know that, and you terp those guys or do some intervention, uh, terp or homin, because that's where the data is, um, that the chances that they're going to void catheter-free eventually is 70%. So in a sense, the urodynamics doesn't tell you give it a shot or not. It helps you counsel the patient. Hey, there's a 30% chance I could do this for naught. Or look at it the bright, the bright side. There's a 70% chance if I do this, you're going to be catheter-free eventually. Not, not you know, post-op day one, but measured in weeks and months. All right. Thank you. A um, couple more here. One uh, taking us back to the acute setting of urinary retention and talking about how long it would be appropriate to try an alpha blocker um, and, and let the patient fail void trials before considering uh, urodynamics or surgery. Well, let's just say considering surgery because it's okay to, you could do urodynamics on day one, really. Um, so let's separate that too. Also, um, was it a provoked retention? Hey, he had a hernia repair, when retention. Or was the guy just walking down the street and boom, I had a spontaneous retention. Um, a guy who's provoked, he has a much higher probability, you know, he had hernia or anesthetic. He has a, obviously a much higher probability becoming catheter free. So, you know, give him alpha blockers. Um, I would give that guy multiple multiple trials. Um, I would say um, two trials is a minimum. That's my art. Um, the guy who's, and I would try to be as encouraged as encouraging as possible. Now, um, Bob Blackwell has a uh, paper um, that showed when you look at those post-op retention patients, they are at higher risk of going into urinary retention downstream measured in years. Uh, uh, going back into your urinary retention. So you want to keep an eye on them. The guy had a spontaneous event. You cannot identify an inciting reason why his retention. The chances that he's going, even you give him alpha blockers and you get the catheter out, the chances that he's going to go back into urinary retention within 12 months is 68%. So on that guy, I give him a, you know, we have a man-to-man -man talk. You know, <laughs> uh, let's start thinking about an elective procedure for you because you want to be on an airplane when this happens next time. Um, so I, I would manage those patients um, in, in that way, give them that kind of counseling. So my own, the easy answer is I, I would give them at least two for sure. And, um, you know, teach them intermittent cat is actually the best because uh, then they can self-regulate. And, and if you end up in the operating room, the men on intermittent catheterization, they always do better than men with chronic infilling catheter. It's been shown multiple times. Intermittent catheterization, never wrong. All right. And then the final question is about how you personally assess prostate volume and how you use it to guide decision making. I think you addressed the decision making part already. So, um, uh, how do I do it? Um, well, <laughs> I don't do a digital rectal examination for that reason. Um, so, um, most commonly, it's ultrasound. If I'm trying to decide, hey, how big are you and if I'm going to make a move, if I make a change um, or make a decision, um, I'll cross over to surgery. I'm going to know his volume. There's a couple of ways to do that. One is, you know, do one right there or, you know, real time. Um, the other is look in the guy's EMR and see, hey, did he ever end up in the emergency room? Did he ever end up someplace where he got a CT or an MR of the pelvis? And just take those images 
and have a smart resident come in if you want and remeasure his prostate volume, you'll get an idea of his volume. Um, and the guidelines say, uh, if it's been in the last thing, it was 18 months or two years, but you know, that range, then that has got to be um, pretty accurate. So I'll always look for those. And if I can't find that, I'll do an ultrasound. And I make that, you know, I look at volume drives surgical choice. So certain volume patients have all kinds of options in terms of what is the most appropriate surgery. As those volumes change or, you know, vary, that limits when you can do some, when you should do one technique and not another. And the guidelines are pretty, pretty um, right on about that. So that's how I use it. Okay, it looks like uh, we've tackled uh, all the questions and uh, we've just about run out of time. So thanks again, Dr. McVeary, and uh, we'll hand it back over to PCSF folks. Okay, wonderful. Part of thanks a lot. Yep. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.